As my high school teacher, Miss Judy Coleman, used to say, we must adjust to changing times and still hold to unchanging principles. Hello and welcome to Unchanging Principles. I'm your host, Josh Carter, and I'm President Carter's grandson. And today is January 6, 2022. Now, it has been a hard year. Now, personally, I'm entering year three of navigating a pandemic with two kids at home, including an immunocompromised toddler that still cannot be vaccinated. I lost my mom in September, and we just went through her birthday, Thanksgiving, and Christmas without her. That was hard. That should have been hard enough for 2021. You know, my grandparents are 97 and 94, so I'm trying to navigate this pandemic and make it down to their house in planes as often as I can to go see them. They're retired, so they're not giving any big public speeches about our country anymore, but we still talk about our country whenever I'm in this living room in planes. In fact, my grandfather wrote an op-ed in the New York Times today about our democracy in peril. And I still get hope from his lessons and his legacy and his life's work. But things are changing in planes, and that sticks with me as I see how things are also changing in our country. Because, you know, I've watched my grandfather devote his entire political career and his post-presidency to furthering democracy. As you know, Jimmy Carter lost the 1980 election to Ronald Reagan. And on January 6th, 1981, the electoral votes were counted in our nation's capital, carrying out the words and the traditions of our nation's constitution since John Adams, and Ronald Reagan constitutionally became our nation's president-elect. And then, two weeks after that, my grandfather gave up America's highest office and gave it to Ronald Reagan in our nation's 39th peaceful transfer of power. Jimmy Carter left the White House and founded the Carter Center in the vision of Camp David to resolve conflicts, create peace, and to spread democracy. You know, I was 17 months old when my grandparents broke ground for the Carter Center to further these missions. And I was three, my son Jonathan's age, when my grandfather first worked with Gerald Ford to support democracies in the Americas, in Latin America. And I was just entering college when Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford got together again to support democracy in the Americas again. But this time, it was for the United States of America, where they created the Carter-Ford Commission on federal election reform after the extremely bitter 2000 election where George W. Bush won the Electoral College by 537 votes in Florida. But on January 6th, 2001, Vice President Al Gore, who received more votes, presided over his own defeat at our nation's capital, at the seat of democracy itself. Al Gore called for the electoral votes to be counted as our constitutional requires, and he officially certified George W. Bush as the president-elect for the United States. George W. Bush of the state of Texas has received for president of the United States 271 votes. Al Gore of the state of Tennessee has received 266 votes. May God bless our new president and our new vice president, and may God bless the United States of America. 
Now, my grandfather and Gerald Ford highlighted many fixes for running our federal elections, and almost none of them came to pass. You know, our system for electing leaders has many anti-democratic flaws, not the least of which is that the person with the most votes doesn't always win. But if we step away from the specifics of the American system and look at democracy as a concept, the whole purpose of democracy is to allow citizens to choose their own leaders. And democracy is the only tool that guarantees that a government is accountable to the people that they govern. And without that tool, without that ultimate check on the government's power, governments are free to oppress their people. And in every case that I can think of, they do. I mean, look at China and zoom in on Hong Kong. Pick any other communist country, like Cuba. Look at dictatorships like North Korea. When America celebrates freedom, this freedom to peacefully change our own government is what I've always understood freedom to mean. We have a freedom for the American people to look at their country, decide its next steps, and then pick the leaders that will fulfill that promise, and then put them in power. This is how my grandfather understood freedom, and this is how he taught it to me. And as the President of the United States, the head of the most powerful democracy in the world, Jimmy Carter has always extolled the virtues of democracy, but this is in no way a partisan position. On January 20th, 2001, my grandparents sat on the front row of George W. Bush's inauguration to watch him take the oath of office. And recently, I attended a symposium co-hosted by George W. Bush's presidential center called Choose Freedom. And in George Bush's words, the goal of that symposium was a call to action, urging a wide array of actors in the American society to redouble their efforts to support democracy and human rights globally for the prosperity, stability, and well-being of our own country for democracies around the world, and for people living under authoritarian rule. So, up until Donald Trump, and I mean from the very point we broke away from King George in 1776 up until 2016, democracy was the core of the American experiment. So it's no surprise that presidents of both parties are passionate about democracy. That said, Jimmy Carter's passion for the subject did not start with his presidency. As my grandfather alluded to in his New York Times op-ed today, Jimmy Carter's passion started with his very first election, where he ran for Georgia Senate, where the election was nearly stolen from him. When my grandfather left the Navy and returned home to Plains to run the family farm, his first foray into politics was him joining the local school board to improve the schools for his black friends who did not have access to actual school buildings, let alone textbooks and musical instruments and playgrounds and such. And he quickly found out that the school board did not have the authority or the funds to make any of the changes that he saw were necessary. And he got really frustrated with his inability to make any progress. So he ran down to the Georgia courthouse one day and became a candidate for the Georgia Senate. Now, Jimmy Carter ran for Senate in 1962. So at this time in history, we're eight years after Brown versus Board of Education. We're five years after Martin Luther King's give us the ballot speech. Civil rights are being hotly debated, and the Civil Rights Act itself is being crafted. But back in Georgia, this was small-town politics. My grandfather's opponent was a fellow businessman, a competitor of my family's business, but 
Sure. I mean, they knew each other, and my grandfather respected him. And his name was Homer Moore. Now, my grandfather's views on race were well known. He was a white man running for black equality in the Deep South. People in his district in South Georgia knew he was running almost explicitly to improve the school system in the South, very much including black schools. And he campaigned every single day, right up to the primary election day. In the South, at that time, the Republican Party was non-existent. So the winner of the Democratic primary won the Senate seat. So on election day, one of my grandmother's cousins told Jimmy that the election was being stolen from him in Quitman County. So my grandfather asked his friend John Pope to go down to Quitman County and see what was going on. The Democratic Party boss in Quitman County was a man named Joe Hurst. There was only one voting precinct in Quitman County, and Joe was there at the precinct himself running the election. The way he ran the election was like this. He was sitting at a table, and voters were required to sit on the other side of the table from him. Joe would slide about across the table and tell the voter to vote for Homer Moore. And then Joe would glare at them until they finished the ballot and slid it back. If it was for Moore, Joe would put it in the ballot box. If it was for Jimmy Carter, Joe would set it aside. So my grandfather was obviously furious, and he called the sheriff of Quitman County, which happened to be one of Joe Hurst's best friends. Not surprisingly, that didn't get him anywhere. So then my grandfather called the local newspaper and told them what was happening in Quitman County, and a reporter came over and said, yeah, well, Joe's up to his old tricks. And that was it. It was all really funny to everybody except for Jimmy Carter. Before Quitman County was counted, my grandfather was up 75 votes in his state senate election. But after Quitman was counted, he lost that county by 360 votes to 136. And from that count, he lost the election. However, my grandfather knew from the voting rolls that only 330 people had actually voted in Quitman County. So my grandfather registered his complaint to the Georgia Democratic Party, and that complaint was immediately ignored, went nowhere. I mean, nobody cared about this except Jimmy Carter. I mean, even his own mother, Miss Lillian, thought that he was naive, but my grandfather was furious over it. So my grandfather went to uh, the press in Atlanta, and they were not interested in a little one-precinct squabble in South Georgia. However, his cousin Don ran the photography desk at the Atlanta Journal, um, and Don convinced the paper to send a reporter to Quitman County. And that reporter came down, and he looked at the voter rolls, and he found that at least 117 voters that signed in that day signed in in alphabetical order straight down the registration list. Some of those voters were dead. So now it turned into a scandal. The Atlanta Journal started publishing political cartoons of dead people rising out of their graves to vote for Homer Moore. The reporter found a lot of other people in Quitman County that were happy to confirm how Joe Hurst had ran that election, and my grandfather obtained sworn affidavits from a number of them. So, with the voter intimidation affidavits and the proof of ballot stuffing in hand, my grandfather went to uh, the Quitman County Courthouse to meet with the county attorney to contest the election. And that's when Jimmy Carter found out that Georgia had no election laws dealing with fraud. According to Georgia law at the time, 
The only recourse that anybody had in a fraud case was to take it up with the political committees in the county. <laughs> Joe Hurst. So there in the courthouse, the case of fraud was brought up to the Democratic Executive Committee. And Joe Hurst's lawyer moved to dismiss. And the entire Democratic Executive Committee voted unanimously to agree. And the fraud charge was dismissed. So according to Georgia law at the time, the only thing left to do was to have the county judge, a man named Carl Crow, observe a recount. So as a matter of course, Judge Crow ordered the recount. Okay, go ahead and do it. The only thing left to do was count the ballots in the ballot box, but then none of the election officials could actually find the ballot box. So Judge Crow ordered a search, and the ballot box was finally found under Joe Hurst's bed with all my grandfather's votes rolled up in a rubber band and no ballot stubs or voter list or anything in the box to determine how many votes should actually be in that voter box. Joe Hurst's legal team declined to present anything. And with that, Judge Crow ordered Quitman County to be thrown out of the election. So now we're back to 75 votes up and Jimmy Carter won his first election to the Georgia Senate. And I celebrated that Everybody on my grandfather's team resolved that they would only drink Old Crow whiskey in Judge Crow's honor from that on. Now, they didn't exactly stay true to that, but there is, in fact, still a bottle of Old Crow whiskey in my grandfather's pantry back at his home in Plains right now. So this was my grandfather's first time running in an election. And during his first election, he lost through fraud, and he won when the fraud was thrown out. In running, he got a crash course of the ins and outs of Georgia's election laws and the need for fair, safe, and secure elections. When he got to the Senate, the only committee that he asked to be on was the Education Committee, but his very first project in the Senate was drafting a comprehensive voter reform package in Georgia that focused on the procedures to combat fraud. Now, my grandfather has fought for voting rights in the United States and around the world ever since. The most damaging thing that any person has ever done to American democracy was Donald Trump fabricating the lie that he won the 2020 election. He did not. Now, it's not a surprise that he insisted that he won. In 2016, he didn't accept the results of the election that put him in office. He surely wasn't going to accept the results of the election that he lost. And he didn't, and he hasn't. And it has now become an article of faith within the Republican Party that the election was stolen from him. So if you're listening to my podcast, you surely know about the two recounts in Georgia, aided by the Carter Center, with their 35 years of experience doing this exact thing, and they found no issues, no fraud. And I'm sure you also know about the Cyber Ninjas in Arizona, a group with absolutely no election monitoring experience, led by a Stop the Steal Trump supporter, that still couldn't find any evidence of voter fraud. It has been stated over and over and over by election experts and officials across the country, across party lines, including Republican secretaries of state like Brad Raffensperger here in Georgia, that the 2020 election was free, fair, and counted correctly. And Joe Biden confirmed this yet again in his speech to America today. There is simply zero proof the election results are inaccurate. In fact, in every venue where evidence had to be produced, an oath to tell the truth had to be taken, 
the former president failed to make his case. But the one thing that I haven't heard people talk about is how easy it would be to actually spot the ballot stuffing that Trump and his supporters claim. I mean, you hear wild conspiracy theories from Trump and his supporters about dead people voting for Biden or the people in Arizona looking for bamboo fibers in the ballots, see if they were shipped in from China or whatever crazy things. There was a deranged story out of Houston where an ex-cop smashed into an air conditioning repairman and ran him off the road and held him at gunpoint, thinking he had 750,000 ballots filled out by Hispanic children in his air conditioning repair truck. Well, that lunatic's in jail, and obviously no stash of fraudulent ballots were found. We have done a lot in this nation to secure our election. And I feel like it needs to be stated just how obvious this sort of fraud would look to our election officials. At every voting precinct in the United States, which in America is about 175,000 different precincts, there is a list of registered voters. And there is a ledger of every voter in that precinct who received a ballot. There is a ballot count that matches the number of people that showed up to vote at that polling place. Ballots are secured, locked, and in tamper-proof boxes. And then those voter rolls travel with those ballot boxes so that when an election official checks the votes in that box, they know how many votes should be in there. And counting those votes is done in the view of the public and the view of election observers from both parties. And if anybody is going to cheat, let's say they pull a Joe Hurst, they start checking names off the voter rolls. They'll be found out if just one of those people shows up to vote, or if one of those voters shows out to be dead. Trump baselessly claimed that 5,000 dead people voted in Georgia, implying that those 5,000 votes were for Biden, neither of which was true. It is the Secretary of State's job to secure the election, and one of the things that they do is check voter rolls against death certificates. When the final tally was over in Georgia, the real number was four. Four dead people voted. Now, each one of those cases was investigated by the state, rightly, obviously. And each one of those cases has a resolution. One woman, a Democrat, sent in her dead husband's ballot marked the way that he would have wanted for Trump. Now, they had been canceling each other's votes out for decades, and she wanted to continue that tradition, that bond between the two of them. It was a stupid thing to do, and it was illegal. But what Georgia found out was every single one of those four votes were family members voting as their loved ones. Now, that doesn't make it right, obviously, and no election is perfect, but no process with 160 million users is going to be perfect. Those four votes did not swing Georgia. But more importantly, they do not in any way point to a larger conspiracy. And maybe even most importantly, our system caught it. Trump did not win this election. But at Donald Trump's insistence, we find poll after poll that barely one-fourth of Republicans think that Joe Biden actually won. And we saw the damage that idea created one year ago today, on January 6, 2021, when for the first time in our nation's history, Americans attacked democracy. They attacked our Constitution in a bloody, failed coup. Now, I had hope that January 6, 2021, that that failed coup would be the end of Donald Trump. 
I would hope that the Trump supporters would see Trump sabotage the American democracy for what it was. We attacked the Capitol. I was hoping they would harshly reject it. For a while, that seemed like it was going to happen. Everybody in the Capitol, Democrats obviously, but Republicans too, were horrified that day. But it turns out that that failed coup was just the beginning. Trump supporters who believe his big lie have proposed 262 bills in 41 states to make it harder to vote or easier for partisans to change the outcomes they don't like. 32 of those bills in 17 states have become law. In Florida, Georgia, Kansas, Kentucky, Montana, Tennessee, and Texas, the state legislatures gave themselves the power to seize and overturn the results of any election that they don't like. In Georgia, the Republicans gave themselves power to take over the election boards in Gwinnett, Fulton, and DeKalb counties, where Atlanta is, and where the majority of Georgia's Democratic votes come from. Fifteen states are penalizing or criminalizing decisions that election officials have to make when they are running an election. For example, election officials in Pennsylvania faced impeachment by the Republican legislature for counting mail-in ballots received in time where the voter did not date his signature, but the rest of the data checked out. You know, in an election, you need an election official to be able to make decisions, and I would want them to err on the side of democracy and aim towards counting votes. You know, otherwise, elections are just unworkable. But I would say one of the most damaging and worrying things that Donald Trump's sabotage of American democracy has accomplished is the unprecedented attack that he has unleashed on election officials. One-third of election officials in America have reported that they feel unsafe in their job, and one in five of them fear for their lives. I mean, stop and think about that for a minute. Think about every time that you have interacted with a poll worker. Just put that person in your mind. What do they look like? There is a 20% chance that that person fears for their life for doing their job. That is unconscionable in the America that I know. American democracy is in peril, and it is because of Donald Trump. President Biden made that very clear today. Those who stormed this Capitol, and those who instigated and incited, and those who called on them to do so, held a dagger at the throat of America, at American democracy. I worry about this constantly. Donald Trump has turned the Republican Party into a party only concerned with two things. Number one, protecting Donald Trump. And number two, seizing the machinery of our nation's elections. Voter suppression tactics have passed in more than one-third of our states. Republican state legislatures in swing states like Georgia have given themselves the power to override the result of an election that they don't like, and they do so at extreme risk of violent uprising. People who believe the lie that Trump won are sitting in the United States Congress and the state houses all over our country. But Trump is primarying the Republicans that picked the Constitution and democracy over him in 2020, such as Governor Brian Kemp and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger here in Georgia. This is the most precarious position that democracy has ever been in in America. Now, I see a narrow path forward, and for America's sake, it's worth taking. First, 
we must support the important work of the January 6th committee in the House. Now, this is a bipartisan effort. It is co-chaired by Vice President Dick Cheney's daughter, Liz Cheney, and joined by a Republican Adam Kinzinger from Illinois. Their goal is to find out all the details of how this violent, awful day unfolded and hold every single person who orchestrated it accountable. Their work is absolutely vital. The second is that the House has passed the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and it is now blocked in the Senate. Now, Leader Schumer is giving the Republicans until January 17th to allow the bills to be debated, and otherwise, he seems willing to change the Senate filibuster rules, which are badly needed to be changed. It is important to call or write your senator, call Leader Schumer's office, and tell them to pass these bills into law by whatever means necessary. These laws will ensure ballot access across the country. It will ensure states provide early voting. These laws will create a national standard for voter validation. It will dramatically simplify voter registration across the country, and they will make Election Day a national holiday. That phone number for anybody in Washington, D.C. is 202-224-3121. And you can also use that same phone number to thank Republicans Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who are working on the January 6th committee and receiving near-constant death threats from Trump supporters for their work. Now, I start my podcast with a line from my grandfather's inaugural address that we must adjust to changing times and hold on to unchanging principles. But lately, I've been thinking a lot about a different line. Back in 1977, in the wake of the Watergate scandal, the Vietnam War, and at the time, unprecedented distrust in the American government, he said this. Let our recent mistakes bring a resurgent commitment to the basic principles of our nation. For we know that if we despise our own government, we have no future. We recall in special times when we have stood briefly but magnificently united. In those times, no prize was beyond our grasp we must find a resurgent commitment to our democracy. And we need to be proud of our ownership of our own government. And we can do that by renewing our commitment to the truth. And we do that by requiring evidence to outrageous claims and then rejecting those outrageous claims when the evidence comes up empty. Now, I believe if we hold those accountable who attacked our country, who attacked our constitution, who attacked our democracy, that we can ensure America's future. And I believe we can do those things. Now, although a majority of Republicans believe Donald Trump's big lie, I think it's important to remember that a lot of Republicans don't, which means an overwhelming majority of Americans believe the truth. We must follow that truth. We must believe in democracy. We must hold on to these unchanging principles. Otherwise, I fear that the violent attack of January 6, 2021 will be a horrible beginning instead of the horrible end that it needs to be. Thank you for listening to Unchanging Principles. Please reach me at josh at unchangingprinciples.com to share your thoughts, ask me a question, or tell me your story. It's very helpful to me if you uh, 
like, and rate my podcast so other people can find it. You can also visit my website, unchangingprinciples.com. It's kind of sparse right now, but I'm working on it. But more importantly, call your senators. Support the new Voting Rights Act. And in those arenas where you have influence, especially with friends and family members that you might not agree with, our democracy needs you to stand up for America's unchanging principles. There is a peaceful solution called the Peace Revolution. Now let's take back America. There's a war and we're in it. I know we can win it. So let's take back America. There was a dream, so believe it. And get ready to receive it. Now let's take back.